Thank you, Lonnie. As you know, read the Word of God because that's the greatest sermon you'll ever hear. It's God's Word itself. Well, um, I always like to encourage you guys to read, to keep reading the Word. And today I just encourage you to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And really meditate on that. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In light of today's passage and in light of really everything that has gone on up to this point. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I encourage you, read it, dwell on it, chew on it, and see how God moves you and what he brings to light. Let's go to, let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord. Thank you that we're able to meet together like this. And it is a little chilly out here, Lord, but thank you for providing this opportunity of, of, of the gathering under your name, gathering under your word. Well, that, that's, that's what shows that we are church, is that gathering part, Lord. To say that you are the faithful creator, that you are Lord of all, and our lives are submitted to you, and that we look towards your Son as the faithful provider and sustainer of our faith that he has accomplished everything for us. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, be with those churches that are meeting around the world in whatever capacity. Lord, be with uh, us today, Lord, as uh, we just try to focus in on what you want, want us to know. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Remind us that Christ has paid for them all. Help us, Lord, to repent of anything that's in the way, Lord to leave it all down at the cross and simply look to you to fill us with love, hope, and peace to know that it is finished, that Christ has accomplished it all. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Jesus uh, said in John eight thirty two, the truth will set you free. And what he means is the gospel message is the way of freedom from this world. That even though we live in a world full of corruption, decay, hate, and sin, and death, Christ has come to set us free. That is just, that is just not a, a nice statement that we tell ourselves when we're feeling down or when things aren't going our way. But this is a statement of truth. The, the truth will set you free. That's an actual promise that Christ has accomplished for us upon the cross. The power of the gospel that Christ has come and died and has been resurrected to give us freedom from this world by faith in him is a life-changing truth that we accept by faith that revolutionizes the way we, the way we think, the way we live. It radically changes the way we view this world. The truth that Christ has accomplished everything for you by faith in him means that the burdens of life are no longer upon you. It's no longer upon your shoulders. The weight of trying to keep it all together, keep it all in a nice package in this world, is not upon you. We now, by faith, only need to look to Christ and his grace to keep us going. We only need to look to Christ by faith to transform us, to empower us, to strengthen us, and to guide us in all things through the power of his word. 
Now that we have faith in Christ, we are no longer left to fend for ourselves anymore. We're no longer isolated in our life. We are no longer alone. We no longer have to hide in the dark corner and in vain frantically try to ward off loss and death. For Christ has stated that he will never leave us and never forsake us if we have faith in him. So no matter what changes come our way, no matter what sufferings we face, no matter what seemingly exhausting and mind-bending trials that confront us, Christ has said he has set us free from the power of them so we have no reason to fear or worry or get angered or feel defeated or feel trapped by the trials that come our way in this life. Christ has promised that he will guide us through them all by his grace alone, through faith in him alone. And and that is true freedom. We need to start just simply looking to him by faith. And that is the message that Peter has been constantly keeping at the center as he's been writing this book of 1 Peter. He wants these suffering Christians that he's been writing to and us to find our everything in Jesus and stop looking to anything else in this world, especially when suffering comes racing in. Because when suffering hits, when trials come about, when hardships strike, we, for, we so easily forget our, our, our identity and our freedom is found in Christ now and is not found in the things t- being taken away from us. We so easily forget that we are truly free, no matter our circumstances, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, we are always a truly free people now that we have Jesus Christ, no matter what the world does to us. So in our text today of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, Peter is coming to a close in helping these, helping these Christians understand why they are suffering and how they should respond to suffering in light of the gospel. He is going to encourage them by giving them, as our title says, final thoughts on Christian suffering. So in verses 15 through 19, he kind of just kind of gives a, a list of things. Like he's finishing up, he's done, and he's going to move on. Now always remember then, this book of 1 Peter was written to people who were living in a time when the world was basically against them, the government was against them, the social fear in which they lived in was against them, they were very much uh, being looked upon and dealt with as being outsiders of society, and they were looked upon and called haters of mankind because they had faith in Christ and followed after him. Why is that? Why would they call them haters of mankind? Well, because the gospel affects you in how you live. The consequence of following Jesus by faith alone, by being fully dependent upon his grace, is that your life becomes transformed by him. Your heart is sanctified by him. Your mind is sanctified by him. Your your heart is changed by him all through faith alone. So you no longer love the sin that you once loved. He guides your choices by faith to start living in a way that rejects the sin in your life, to no longer be okay with it and accept it as being normal and part of your life. 
He releases you from that old brutal master of sin and says you are under his leadership and his care now. By faith in Christ's finished work, he reveals and empowers you to be conformed to his image. And this plays a vital role in how you end up living in this world. You live differently, not perfectly. Trust me, just ask my wife. She'll let you know, he ain't perfect. But you live differently from the world because you're constantly looking to Jesus to change your heart and your mind and your emotions by faith in him. And as this process happens by his grace alone, the world takes notice. And guess what? The world generally, I think it's lightly, doesn't like that change within you. And the world doesn't want you to be a Christian. That's the one thing they don't want you to do. And these Christians were living, that he was writing to, were living in a time and place where the world was making them suffer majorly for choosing Christ by faith over the world. And Peter wants them to continue to choose Christ by faith in all that they did, though. To live with the freedom that they now have in Christ in all things by his grace. He did not want them to start choosing evil because of the pressures that were coming against them. He wanted them to keep choosing Christ, keep living in faith no matter what they faced. So in verse 15... Peter, gives some, uh, Peter gives, some, gives some very practical examples, very down-to-earth examples of what a life of freedom in Christ, living in his grace, does not look like. Or put differently, Peter reveals what does not reflect a life that is living in the light of the freeing gospel of grace looks like, especially during times and trials. You're probably like, well, what doesn't it look like? Well, he's going to tell you. And this brings us to our very first point, or the first list. First one on the list. Don't create suffering. Let suffering come naturally. He says in 1 Peter 4, 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. I know some of you may think like, wow, those are some extreme examples. But remember, when you are pushed to the brinks of losing your family or your very life, or really when any trial in any form of worldly pressure hits hard enough to where it seems like there's no way out, it's very easy to fall into sinful choices that you may think are extreme now and then try to justify them in the name of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 states, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So, so in verse 15, Peter says, No matter how hard, life get, how hard life gets, Peter is very blunt and tells them and us that you are never called by the Lord to suffer as a murderer. You're never called by the Lord to suffer as a thief. You're never called by the Lord to suffer as an evildoer. If you are suffering from the world for any of those things because you did them or are doing them, then that's on you. Don't try to justify it in the name of Jesus. Don't grossly hide behind the name of behind his name 
because of the sin that you are doing. Any suffering that comes from things like these, even if it's from an ungodly world and ungodly people, is deserved. These ways are not a reflection of living in light of the gospel, no matter how much we try to justify it in our minds and hearts. Peter has stated this truth once before in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but live as servants of God. And now he's revealing what that evil, what those sins that we may try to cover up look like. These sinful behaviors only pursue the sinful agendas, uh, our own sinful agendas, and not Christ's freeing message of hope and forgiveness and joy that we found in the gospel. Murdering people because you, because, uh, who are causing you suffering for being a Christian does not reveal the grace and forgiveness that you have in Christ. There's no way around it. Murdering those, murdering those who threaten you because of your faith in Christ does not show that God is in control and he is your shield and your defender. Stealing from those who are stealing from you even if they can afford it, does not reveal the grace of God is sufficient for you, that he alone is your provider. Being an evildoer, looking for ways to cause personal destruction and pain to those who are causing you pain and destruction for being a Christian, does not reveal the ways of Christ. For Christ said, love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them, bless them. For all three of these categories are the exact opposite of what the message of the gospel is. For the gospel in which we are called to live in light of says that Christ came to save evil people, to do good to them by giving up his life for them so they could be forgiven and experience his love and his grace and be with him for eternity, though they do not deserve it. So being a murderer, thief, or evildoer does not reveal this message or bring glory to God. So if they examine themselves and find that one of these three categories is why they're dealing with the sufferings and trials in their life, then they have no right to complain for they brought it upon themselves and they are not to hide behind the name of Christ, especially why they're doing them. So if you're like, okay, whew, but what, is, what about me? Well, what I find interesting is that Peter brings up one more category that is seemingly small in comparison to the other categories. In verse 15, he says, he goes from murdering to meddling. He says in verse 15, don't suffer as a meddler. Now, what on earth is a meddler? Why is he comparing that to a murderer? Well, it means to inappropriately get involved in other people's lives. Saying things and doing things that you really have no authority or business in doing. It means purposely trying to disrupt any peace or harmony in the community, whenever, wherever you are, in the name of Jesus. This is where a person takes a moral high ground and makes it known to all by tactically imposing their views and thoughts on those around them. Even though it may be the truth, 
They are harsh in their communication and brutal in their, in their interaction. So it's not the truth that is the issue. It's not the gospel that is causing the problem. But the real problem is the pious, snooty, belittling, I'm better and smarter than you self-promoting attitude in how they are giving the truth that is causing the persecution to come upon them. Rather than seeking restoration and gently reaching out a hand to help people see the graceful truth of the gospel, they become self-appointed overseers of other people's lives and choices. And Jesus just becomes a tool in achieving what they want in the moment with no regard for the best way of presenting the gospel so people can understand the love and grace of God that he has for them. And they have no regard in approaching people in the love and grace that has been given to them personally in Christ by faith. So Peter says, look, as evil as people may be to us because of our faith in Jesus, that doesn't give us license to be obnoxious, rude, brutal in return. Even if we suffer so if we suffer for being meddlers like that, that's on you. And that brings no glory to God. Now with Peter then covering this wide spectrum of sins, one that ends lives and one that agitates lives, Peter is being very frank and saying, look, do whatever it takes to avoid being a uh, to avoid the target of hostility to the best of your abilities. Or to be blunt, stop making life about you. And rather choose to make life about faith in Christ by trusting in Him and His ways. Put yourself to the side. Die to self. So by implication then for you and I currently, if we, are cur if we are in a current situation of suffering and hardship, we need to filter our lives then through God's word, through his gospel, and see if we have done anything to create the situation that we are in. Is there anything we need to repent of and turn away from by faith in Christ? Is there anything that I am doing that's causing problems to come about my life because I'm trying to find my identity in this world rather than Christ? Am I creating problems with those around me because I am trying to find fulfillment, respect, dignity, worth, comfort, peace, hope, joy, attention, acknowledgement, safety in the things of this world rather than finding all of that in the finished work of Jesus Christ? These are the biblical questions we have to, we have to ask ourselves when trials or persecutions arise in our life and not just automatically assume that people are causing us problems because we have faith in Jesus. The problem might not really be with them, but really with you. And you and Jesus need to speak about it and work out the practical implications and consequences of his grace over you now as you interact with those around you. We need to always refresh ourselves with the gospel of God's grace to let it take center stage in our hearts and in our minds and in our life. So Peter says then in verse 16, yet, or but, 
If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And this brings us to our second point, the list. Remember what it means to be a Christian. So Peter says in contrast to suffering for doing evil, which you shouldn't be doing because you're trying to be peaceful and respectful to all, Peter says the only reason why you should find yourself suffering, or really your only crime against humanity, should be that that, that is brought against you, is that you are a Christian. That really should be the only negative thing that anyone should be able to say about you. That you have chosen to follow Christ and his ways rather than the world and its ways. That your life choices, your values, your beliefs, your responses, everything about you is reflecting your faith in Christ now. Everything about you is heading in that direction and people aren't liking it because you are changing. So if persecutions and hardships and sufferings come about you choosing Jesus, then Peter says glorify God in it for that reveals you're on the right path and are living by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. But notice, he says, glorify God in that name. What name? That name of being labeled a Christian. You might ask, well, wait, why would he say glorify God in that name? Weren't they already Christians? Why would that matter? Well, the term Christian is only used three times in the Bible, twice in Acts and once here in 1 Peter. But understand, this term, Christian, was not originated by believers. They, believers, called themselves disciples, or they called themselves believers, or those who belong to the way. They didn't call themselves with the label Christian. Acts 11.26, where the term Christian first shows up, the Greek points out there that it was a label given to believers, not something that they made up. Acts 26, verse 28, King Agrippa refers to the name Christian in disrespect as if it's below him. Like, how could you ever, uh, how would you ever think that I would ever associate with that name, that label, Christian? The term Christian came from unbelievers as a derogatory word a demeaning label. To be called Christian, meaning Christ follower, was meant to belittle you and think you a fool. So then in the context of suffering for being a Christian that Peter is bringing up, that's why he's bringing it up, he says, if you're being labeled as a Christian and that name keeps popping up wherever you go, don't be ashamed of it. Embrace it. For the very thing that the world is trying to hurt you with only strengthens you in the Lord and helps you see your faith in action. Peter says, don't be ashamed for your faith in Christ. So embrace that derogatory label as a Christian and glorify God for it. For the label of a Christian that's coming upon you from the world, if you're suffering for that name, 
you definitely know God is working amongst you and within you. So Peter then builds and encourages them to embrace this label of Christian and suffer for it all the more by speaking of God's judgment among, uh, among them. And this brings us to our third and final point. Have peace in God's judgments over you. He says in verse 17, For it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I know what you might be thinking. John, I, I thought you said he was encouraging them. Um, this sounds more like he's scaring them. I mean, God's judgment beginning with us, uh, that's a little scary. Not encouraging, John. But here's the thing. If you keep in mind the context of what Peter has been saying in this section of Scripture, verses, uh, starting in verse 12, or really this whole book, that the fiery or refining trials that come upon them, the sufferings that they are enduring for the name of Jesus, is working out for their benefit, revealing God's presence amongst them and within them and upon them that the very threats and persecutions of the world that is being used to try and crush them have become the very, uh, by, uh, through the power of the cross, have become the very tools in which God is using to strengthen them and refine them as his people through faith in Christ. If you keep that in mind, when Peter speaks of the judgment beginning at the household of God or amongst God's people, since we are his temple in which he is building and living within, the judgment that Peter is speaking of is God's righteous judgment that peers into your heart, your soul, your very actions, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, and compares them to his righteous standard. For this is the judgment of God, something that all people, believer or not, will have to face at the end of our lives. For God is not partial in his judgments. All people will have to face the great white, uh, great white throne. But Peter says, the only difference is, is that Christians, Peter says, the Christians, right, that name, start to face it now, that judgment, with joy and confidence because we face God's judgment through Christ's finished work on our behalf now, now that we have faith in Jesus. So God judging us is not judging us in condemnation and wrath and anger. For all that was taken by Jesus and all that was absorbed upon the cross, Peter has stated that already in chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, He himself bore our, sins and, uh, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. For if we have faith in Christ, there is no judgment of condemnation from God upon us. Christians have no need to fear the wrath of God anymore no longer need to fear his, condemn, uh, his condemnation or punishment or his judgment as we live in this life. Romans 8, 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4, verses 17 through 18 says, By his love, or by this love perfected us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. A joy, right? We're looking forward to it. Because 
as he is, so also are we in this world. We've been forgiven. There is no fear in love. We don't need to fear the judgment. For perfect, uh, perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We don't have to worry about that. So we are not called to fear God's judgment now that we have faith in Christ, but we are to look forward to it and have peace in it now and in the future because the judgment that God gives as he peers into our lives is one that is done in his love and through his grace to remove the presence of sin in our life. God's judgment over us now becomes a loving discipline for us to trust in him more and to conform in his ways by faith in Christ and Christ's finished work for us. To look to his perfect performance on our behalf and to stop looking at our own performance. If this is hard to grasp, a popular psalm is Psalm 51, 10 through 11, where it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take, me, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, how do you think he does that? How does he create a clean heart within you and make his presence known? What do you think happens when God brings his presence into your life by faith when you trust in his, fini- when you trust in his son's finished work on your behalf? He changes you. He molds you. He judges you in a lovingly father discipline by revealing the sin that Christ has paid for. So he shows you these sins, not in his wrath over you, but over but in his love. He reminds you that these sins have no power over you. So you now could turn away from them by faith in Christ and his performance on your behalf. You look to him. God reveals the presence of sin in your life that has been forgiven by Christ and then by his grace through faith in Christ's finished work. And I say that over and over again because it doesn't come from you. It comes from Jesus. Gives you the power by his grace to turn away from him. The power that Christ has accomplished through the cross for us so we can have the Holy Spirit change us, change our very hearts towards sin. So Peter is saying that God's judgment or fatherly loving discipline over us is how he removes the presence of sin in our life. The judgment begins with us. And in this context, Peter reveals that one of those ways we see his fatherly discipline is by suffering for the name of Jesus. Suffering for Christ truly reveals our idols. It reveals our pride, our unrighteous anger, our selfishness, our self-centeredness. It reveals our lust. It reveals our desires. It reveals really how sinful we are and really how way worse we think we are. It just shows us how bad we truly are and how much we need Jesus. So Peter wants us to see this judgment that we go through is for our betterment so that we can be disciplined in the Lord by faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says it's the exact same thing, so you're not thinking I'm making this up. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God removes the sin from us. We don't, He does. 
Suffering for Christ then truly helps us depend upon Christ for everything. So this judgment of discipline that God gives us through these trials reveals that our salvation is truly ours now that we have Jesus. For the path that Jesus said is very narrow because God is constantly removing the presence of sin in our life. Then Peter asks a question in verse 17 and says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And we're coming to an end here. What Peter is getting at is that if God hates sin so much that he starts removing the presence of sin in our life now, now that we've been completely forgiven by Jesus through faith alone in him, if God is removing the presence of sin by suffering for his name, and this only works out for our betterment, what type of wrathful judgment is waiting for those who are doing their best to keep the presence of sin in their life by not obeying the gospel, which just means not placing their faith in Christ alone? What horrifying end is awaiting them? And in verse 18, Peter quotes from an Old Testament book, the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 31, to reinforce what he says here. And he changes the word slightly, but the intent is the same thing. So he says in 1 Peter, verse 18 of chapter 4, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Which is just another way of saying that if God uses such difficulties, for the word scarcely there means with difficulty, not just barely. If he uses such difficult times, if he uses these sufferings in our life for our good as a way of purging the sin from us to keep us on the path of salvation by faith alone in Jesus and his grace that he has accomplished it all, how brutal of a condemning judgment is awaiting those who are fattening up on sin for the day of slaughter, as James says in chapter 5 of his book. And Peter concludes then in verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Meaning that if suffering is coming about your life because you are trusting in Christ, if suffering is coming about because you are following after his ways as a Christian, then don't stop it. The suffering that is coming is not punishment from God. He is not condemning you but he's revealing to you that he's being faithful to you by removing the sin. God is showing you that Christ has saved your soul and he is making sure that the work that Christ accomplished upon the cross is being done within you and it will be brought to completion on that final day. Not by your power, but by his. Not by your performance, but by Christ. For Peter says that we are saved by God's faithfulness to us and not our faithfulness to him. We entrust our souls to with a faithful creator, not our faithfulness to him. And by his grace, if we keep that in mind, that Christ has won, that Christ has truly set us free, we should by faith then continue to do good despite the suffering that comes from it. For in choosing to do good, though we may stumble, though we may fall, and even may... Simply by having faith in Christ, we reveal to the world that we are trusting in Christ and not ourselves. That we truly believe that there is a faithful God who is faithful to us even though we are not faithful to Him. 
and we will show the world that he is in control and he will judge it on that final day. And we as Christians will be confident in that day because we have Christ as our faithful representative for, he, for he, we have faith in his finished work despite our own failures and sins. So church, keep pressing on in faith in the unlimited freedom that Christ provides by his grace despite any trials that come our way. For by Christ and faith in him, we will prevail because he has already won. Let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, this, this, this passage is a lot and it's heavy. It's a lot to take in. But God, I just ask right now that you help those who are dealing with suffering to understand that you're working it out for their betterment. That even if they have caused the suffering themselves, that they can see the very sins that they need to repent of and trust in you and admit that they're a sinner that's, that, that, are, that always needs grace. For all things work for our good. You take the worst of things about us and change it into beauty because you're more concerned about us being conformed to your image than you are about our comfort because our comfort is found only in you and not in this world. God, if someone doesn't know you right now, I pray that they come to know you and put their faith in you to understand that Jesus has come and, and died for them so they can have true freedom. They can have a relationship with you. And God, I ask right now, if people are struggling with the sufferings that are coming about, and Lord, we know there are some in our, in our midst, and we know that there are, there are people right now who are truly suffering. God, send them the comfort. And let them know that you love them, and it was never for punishment. It's not punishment, but it's a way of us coming to know you and depend upon you more. And that there is joy there. Though we have tears, we can still have joy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.